0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the Asia Tech Podcast virtual studio by Blake Larson, who's none other than the Managing Director of International for La La Move. Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here because you are obviously one of the brands, one of the stories that people talk a lot about in Asia because you're expanding rapidly. Um, You know, all kinds of different terms used to describe Lala Move. You're the Uber of this. You're the next unicorn to come out of Hong Kong, et cetera, et cetera. So, that, you know, there's a lot of expectation about what you do. Perhaps you could sort of tell it in your own terms. What exactly is Lala Move?
1: Sure. So a lot of moves focusing on local deliveries. So we're making it easier for uh, s- small businesses that really just want to focus on their core business. Don't want to worry about you know buying motorcycles, vans, trucks, um, managing drivers, and we let them you know take care of their business. And we we're a partner to them uh, to make sure that their things get delivered to their customers.
0: Right. So this is logistics. It's last mile. Yes. Yeah.
1: I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're doing this all in a, you know, a, a uh way. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're basically pooling together all these independent uh, delivery drivers across Asia and, you know, we're giving them a common platform where they can make more money. And we're also helping out, you know, the, the primarily the small business users, but even some consumers and large corporations that, that really, you know, are, are looking to scale their business, but, you know, want to invest their money and, and time in, in, their, in their core business and, you know, have somebody take care of the logistics for them.
0: Right. So let's talk about typically how consumers actually use this app. Okay, so one example would be, you know, I've got to deliver a package, a present to somebody across mm. the city. Or, you know, maybe I need to deliver 200 bags of coffee, whatever it may be. How would I actually use the app? Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.
1: I mean, there, there's a couple different ways, right? So we, we obviously have a mobile app on both uh, iOS and Android, but we also have a web app and API, right? So it's really whatever your volume is, you, you can come to us and you know, place your order. Um, but for just the consumer, say like, I mean, just the other day I, I went home from work, I, I left my um, mobile phone at home. So I had one of my colleagues open up the app and just really in you know, about 20 seconds place an order, driver goes to my house picks up my mobile phone and brings it to me. And, you know, otherwise it would take me an hour to go yeah. back and forth or, or something like this. So it's super convenient for, you know, these little errands uh, that, mm. you know, you don't have time to do it yourself.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad it all worked out. So yeah, I-, I love this story as well. You tell this story, which I'll share with the listeners here, that you were conducting market research in Bangkok and you asked a van driver literally sitting by the road how much it would cost to move a parcel. And he said... 1500 baht which was about 40 bucks right US mm. and then you asked him how much it would cost to hire him for a day and he said the same answer so what was <laughs> yeah. going on there can you explain a little bit about that dynamic
1: yeah i mean uh as you know uh or the listeners may or may not know traffic in southeast asia is just a nightmare um right especially for the the larger vehicles right yeah. so getting around you know Going a couple of kilometers in Bangkok maybe can take you you know thirty minutes to an hour in Manila that may take you four hours right Jakarta yeah. same thing so how it works on the driver's side is like because of this and they actually don't know where their next order is going to come from yeah. they just need to make a certain amount of money every single day and so they don't know as as um, due to the uncertainty in the future of the next order they they try to make everything they can in you know, what's right in front of them. And so this really speaks to the inefficiency in the marketplace because, I mean, there's obviously things that need to be moved. But these drivers don't have an easy way to get information on where they're coming from, where they should be, how they should do it. So consequently, like it, it's a right before us, it was kind of a lose-lose situation for these independent contractors.
0: Yeah, he may only uh-huh. get one order a day, right? And yeah, that, exactly, like you say, that's why exactly. well, he's got to make a day's worth of money out of one order.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys are coming from like the very rural areas, yeah. you know, um, in in Southeast Asia or even our drivers in China, and the, being a delivery driver is, you know, uh, one of the the professions that they can move into fairly easy without a lot of education. But right. at the at the same time, like they, they weren't given the tools and they're, you know, or there's lots and lots of middlemen and, you know, taking cuts from them in yeah. between so that they're really before us. Like they were kind of like the, the last man or, or woman to, you know, benefit from all the things and the growth of e-commerce in the region.
0: So if I was one of those taxi drivers coming in from the rural provinces, like you say, I would probably be, you know, I'd be renting my car from, the big boss, you know, and Mm -hmm. then I would uh, be receiving my orders through a number of, you know, it'd be filtered through hands, wasn't it? So actually when I get it, I'm getting just a snip of what the actual end price would be that they're charging the business or the customer, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, so I was was talking to the same, uh, or actually another driver in Bangkok, and I said, so how does this actually work? So he moved in from like uh, the north uh, part of the country, came into Bangkok, he got a truck that he had to, you know, I'm sure he's paying a crazy interest rate to rent this truck, and then he has to pay a big deposit to like um, a traditional like 3PL or I think it was one of the FMCG companies mm. to do deliveries for them around Bangkok. And he'd have to pay like a, a 20,000 baht security deposit. And he'd, he would go there every single day to mm. see if there would be orders. So he'd go there 28 out of 30 days in a month and he would only get orders 14 out of the days. So oh. the other 14 days, he, he didn't have any work unless he could like find customers on his own. And so, I mean, it's just a really, really inefficient and outdated system.
0: So, I mean, if you put that in the context of, like, say, you know, like Airbnb as an example, it's a classic example of one of the first business models to tap into what what is sort of redundant inventory, isn't it? It's, you know, there's a lot of empty space and there are a lot of people who want to use that empty space. But the problem is just sort of matching the two, isn't it? Like you mentioned, the same sort of challenge with that driver. He doesn't have the tools. He's turning up at the, the depot you know, ha- half of his working time and just sort of hanging around, I guess, in absolute ways. I mean, you can look
1: at us as, like, the most efficient marketing channel from a driver's standpoint, right? right. Just like at Airbnb, as you said. Like, uh, if you were to go try to, you know, market your individual apartment for rent, like, your reach would be virtually, like, your friend's friends, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, uh, we kind of fulfill the same, you know, role for, for our drivers.
0: How does the trust aspect come into that? Because I, I guess... You know, if I was a business and I you know, I wanted to deliver these documents and I've, I've got a, a guy who's coming in from the provinces, you know, sure. I, you know, I'm sure trust now becomes an issue, doesn't it? That, you know, yeah. how do I know this is going to get to the end? You know, I want to make sure that order is fulfilled because my experience of Uber is, you know, I I place an Uber order and, you know, two-thirds of the time he turns up, but a third of the time he just disappears, right? So mm. how do we work that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the number one thing are... You know, customers really um, value us for is the reliability piece, right? So, I I mean, in an on demand business, that fulfillment piece that you're talking about, the reliability, whether it's taxis or us, is like, it's the hardest thing because you have to have the right amount of liquidity at any given moment. Right. Um, And so, this is what we focus on the most. Um, But as far as the the trust side, uh, we actually are pretty diligent about bringing our drivers in. I, I mean, you obviously go through all of the, document verification, background checks, all of this. But we also do uh, very, um, in, I, I don't know about intensive training, but we do, where they come into our office, we actually meet them. There's no virtual sign up and just start driving. So we go through all the steps, what we expect from a customer service standpoint, hmm. and then at once they become our driver, we actually signal them, like we, we highlight them in, in our system, and we actually coach them through you know the first um, X amount of orders to ensure, hey, you know, this is your first order, don't forget to do this, blah, blah, blah. And so we actually create a support system for the drivers and consequently the customers look at us as the service provider. Um, So if something goes wrong, they know that they can call us and we'll solve it. It's not like we're we're a pure marketplace and it's like the the driver and user just figure out your own problems. You know, we're we're really, though, uh, the glue between those two.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated to know, and I, I want to ask a question, which I guess people may be afraid to ask, but they they're thinking is that, you know, can you train people, you know, from the provinces, people who may not have an education, people who you know, may not even read 100% or be fully literate to be great at customer service. I mean, people must be thinking that. And that, you know, because, you know, our understanding is you walk into an Apple store and you meet genius people. and These are educated, trained people, Mm. right? Who know know the score. They're consumers themselves. Does that work for, you know, a driver?
1: Uh, I mean, I, I would say there's varying degrees, right? So like when you're building any kind of product where like you can go to the nth degree, like we could have the same quality of service, that say Apple does, right? But like actually that's not what our customers demand. Mm-hmm. So it's somewhere probably in between. And so the drivers like, it's like when you do anything in a repeated motion, you get better and better at it, right? So it's it's actually our job to give them the tools and actually to create a system that incentivizes the behaviors that we want. We actually yeah. believe that like, this is why platforms are, are so effective is because actually it's just, one, they scale, and two you can create systems to influence behavior in a consistent manner or in a consistent manner where managers when they're trying to do this in people it, there's a lot of inconsistency and they're not scalable. So we actually believe that systems are better at driving the types of behaviors that you want than actually people are because yeah. it's done consistently over and over again and it's scalable. And so like we we prioritize our orders to our best drivers, right? And so the better ratings they get, the better service they get, the more orders mm-hmm. they get. And so the more money they get. So you actually try to align the incentives of the system and the individual in a way that, you know, both get better.
0: Yeah, that has to be for me as a consumer, one of the the, the most impressive aspects of any kind of, you know, like a uh, passenger delivery service, like you mm. take a Grab or an Uber or something like that. Right. And, you know, I'm all surprised is that, okay, they're reliable. But the, the the fact that really makes an impression upon me is that, you know, you get into a cab, you get into like an Uber or you get into mm. a Grab And they're they're happy. You know, how are you doing, Mr. Brown? You know, did you have a Mm. good flight? You know, where are you heading? Then you get into like the local (laughs) taxi company taxi, and you know, they don't talk to you, they're miserable. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the same person or almost. Right. But they're yep. kind of in a different system. The The effect is profound. Is is that purely about what you're talking about? Rewarding the right behaviors?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the system in, influences it. But also, again, you're you're probably taking out the middlemen. So if you look at the taxi industry and in, say Hong Kong, right, like these taxi right, right. licenses are you know, upwards of like a million U.S. dollars. The taxi drivers aren't owning these taxis. They're working for other people. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a, a different sense of pride and, you know, um, passion when you're doing something um, for yourself and you're seeing like the energy that you put in is um, like the output that you get on the reward side. And so this is why I believe companies like us or Grab or Uber or any of these guys um, actually are a, a better way for people to work. Yeah. And it's a happier way to work. I mean, it's not a perfect way to work, but it's definitely an improvement over the existing um, you know, traditional industries.
0: The change isn't a costly change, is it? It's just simply focusing on the metrics which reward those behaviors, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, for people who like, a, like we go back to these taxi drivers or these truck drivers who or motorbike riders you know come from the provinces yeah they they want to make money for their families but they also want to enjoy their work they don't want to be miserable right and the fact that they can be happy doing it means they can be more productive so
1: yeah i mean we we, we basically have three values that we try to bring to our drivers and this is how we make our strategic and product decisions as we just say we're, we're there to provide them respect income and freedom right, right? so these are kind of like our three north stars on the driver side. So everything that we do, whether that's in the product or online or offline, should you know respect these three three values. Yeah. Because yeah. And, and so consequently, we do a lot of community um, building because a lot of it is about people just want to be respected. It's like you know, the hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we can play a very fundamental role in helping you know these drivers move up that hierarchy.
0: Yeah. So to what extent does you know driver to driver word of mouth? Help you. I mean, how does that actually sort of play out when you're moving into a new city? Because I can imagine, mm. you know, like some guys using your app as a as a driver. He, yeah. he's, they're going to hang around with other drivers all day, right? Sure. sure. They're going to talk sure. about this. How does that actually work for you?
1: If you really look at it a business standpoint, um, driver acquisition for us is very very important, and it's not very costly because these guys all know each other, right? So, yeah. like they they already have their sub communities, so. Um, if you can position yourself in a way that actually like supports that individual and that community, um, it's really not that hard to drive the word of mouth that you need to, to build the supply base because you are actually providing them an opportunity um, to, you know, kind of take their um, business in their own hands. And, and, and that's not for every driver, by the way. You mm. know, I mean, there, there's always uncertainty in this model, but for a lot of drivers, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, or they do it to append their normal job, right? They one driver in Bangkok that only was doing one order from the same customer every single day. Well, now he has the whole afternoon open, and so he then jumps on our platform. So this this kind of flexibility is much better than him trying to find a second part time job, right. right, where he actually is on contract or something. So uh, it, it it seems to be you know moving in the right direction.
0: Is that normal for? one of your drivers to and, and by the way for the listeners is you don't employ these drivers right you, no, know, you okay no. so, so i say one of your drivers one that uses your service they, they'll right. use your service they'll they'll also have another job they'll use another yep. service you know they'll yep. be they'll be maybe on multiple platforms is that yes. common
1: yes it's, it's very common i mean we uh, people always ask about this investors ask about this exclusivity right but like right, right. um you you saw some of the uh, ride sharing guys try to do this on the car side at, through the like the leases of the vehicles and and we're of the belief that, like, our job is to provide more value. And yeah. so if we're providing more value, drivers will use us. And, and they'll use us in different ways. So it's not really for us to dictate how they do or don't work.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting about exclusivity. That's a bit of an old-school mindset, isn't it? But you, 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 Definitely. Could, you could be better off if, if it wasn't exclusive on both sides, right? That You've got the flexibility. You know, you don't then get seen as an employer, right? Which is, Absolutely. you know, you've got that issue is that now you, if you were paying the wages of these, these drivers, they would be looking to you and say, okay, right, you know, where's my next job coming from? You, you know, that's kind of mm. like, you don't want that kind of relationship. You want people to kind of think that they're, you know, almost self-employed in this relationship, right? They have to go out and get the business. They have to be part of that marketing process as well. You know, It's not all your responsibility
1: absolutely i mean if you even think on an individual level like when you do things in your life when you personally opt into something you typically put more energy and are more passionate about doing it well as opposed to like somebody telling you to do something yeah so i mean you can apply that to anything in life and like uh, i i would say it you know it it applies very much to our business model
0: yeah excellent well let's talk about some of the numbers blake if we can i've got a The numbers that you've published this year, so, I mean, obviously this may have changed since this went out, but mm-hmm. there's a really lovely infographic that Lala Move have published about um, uh, yeah, yeah. where you are right now. I'll just sort of pick out, I'll just cherry pick some of the numbers if sure. I can, right? Okay. Just quickly go through these. Um, 160 million US in funding. Obviously, that's one of the big stories about Lala Move. Your That was a Series C, wasn't it? The last round? I, yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, we, we, we got that from uh, Lei Jun, which is uh, Xiaomi.
0: Okay, so uh, so you have Xiaomi as a as a major investor as well. So I mean that's interesting for your China presence, right? Right. Okay, so you have got 160 million US uh, funding. You're in 126 cities Mm -hmm. in how many countries? Six or seven? What do you? Uh, It should
1: be it should be seven now. I mean we're opening up Malaysia and Indonesia in the next six weeks, so we'll have a couple more to that.
0: Right. So you're Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Thailand, Vietnam. Malaysia, Indonesia are coming, Philippines as well. You're in. So, yeah. well, that's se- Yeah, I've seven, maybe eight. I don't know. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, you probably don't know yourself. It grows so <laughs> fast, right? It's moving quick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just on that, I mean, 126 cities. I mean, you're obviously the, the point man for international expansion. You must mm-hmm. spend a lot of your time out there on a plane, you, you know, all over Asia. What kind of a lifestyle is that for you? Where, where, where have you been recently?
1: Oh, I mean, we we recently just had our um, management meeting in Ho Chi Minh, which was our uh, most recent city in Southeast Asia. Right. Um, So, you know, we try to get out there and make sure that you're both supporting the new cities, but also understanding the dynamic on the ground, because our business is, while logistics is everywhere, you know, I mean, it makes up 18% of GDP, and I think across the world, Uh, our our business is a very, very local business, because we're not doing international, we're not doing cross-border, we're doing, you know, first and last mile deliveries. And how that dynamic plays out in each individual city is very, very different, mm. and so um, it's very important for you know the the team to get out, the management team especially, and the people at HQ here in Hong Kong to understand like what is it like for a user or a driver in you know a Ho Chi Minh or Manila or a Jakarta because they're all very, very different.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about Ho Chi Minh as an example because that was your most recent one. Right. Is that one of your more recent? Uh, uh, you know, more recent outpost, so to speak, because it's you know obviously Hong Kong is where you started. Singapore, you have a big presence as well. Where, where does sort mm. of Ho Chi Minh fit this Yeah, the Ho, Chi, story? Ho
1: Chi Minh is our most recent city in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, it, it, out of 126 cities, it is our fastest growing city as well. Yeah. yeah. So uh, after only a few months of operations, um, we're very very pleased with the uh, the uh, traction we've seen in that in that city.
0: Right, because I think any, any visitor to Ho Chi Minh, the first thing that they'll sense is the traffic right
1: yeah you know what i mean i mean yeah. how
0: many motorbikes are in that city i have you know i mean a lot i don't know
1: millions millions right. i don't know it's probably more than one per capita or something you know it's yeah there's you've, a lot.
0: you've got the economy is growing at eight percent a year one of the fastest growing economies in the world isn't it so
1: yeah and you've got a very young vibrant exactly. population there yeah. um i would say it's becoming a much more global economy they're taking their cues and the internet and the mobile space from a lot of Uh, people that have moved earlier and now they have both the the youth, the energy and the the rising incomes to support, you know, a lot of growth for the future.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Especially being an American, you know, the history Mm. with America and Vietnam, you know, some Americans still think Vietnam is what they've seen in the movies, right? Uh And They go to Vietnam. And it's uh, you know I, I saw a, a a survey I think it came out last year which was run by YouGov, which basically asked a whole bunch of countries around the world you know how how op- you know they asked them you know globalization is it a good thing or not mm. something to that extent I paraphrase it and they ranked all the cities in the world all the countries in the world and at the bottom you had. You know, you had the UK, France, you know, the US were there as well, in like the bottom five and all the sort of the old colonial powers, so to speak. Yeah. And the countries you would have thought would have been at the bottom because of the history of globalization, you know, and they've sort of been at the receiving end, we're at the top. And the number one was Vietnam. So interesting. Yeah, I, I
1: wouldn't have guessed it would have been Vietnam, but I mean, absolutely. Wow.
0: You know, you know, they, they were the most positive about globalization. Interesting. Another country that you're in number two was Philippines, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's that vibe there. When you talk about how things are different in every city that you go to, can you describe a little bit for the listeners what it's like in Ho Chi Minh to do business there? What what sort of sense did you come away with?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of dynamics in Ho Chi Minh that remind me of, like, um, I don't know how business is done in China, like with the small shops. uh, You go to different districts where, like, it's all of, you know, the mechanics or all of the tile shops or all of, you know – a vegetable food store. So it's like very, very segmented this way. And there's a lot of small business that is driving the economy there. I mean, I don't, you do have obviously have your large conglomerates, um, but more in like the telecom space and maybe some of the retail, but it's still a primarily like small business driven um, economy. And there's just a vibrancy in that. Um, and just, I think that's why you see so many motorbikes, I mean, moving everything around because you know, it's not like you just go like in a lot of places, maybe to your Walmart or your Carrefour or your Tesco, and you do all of your shopping. You know, so it's it's really the 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 energy of these small businesses that are that are making those cities move.
0: Mm-hmm. But what's it like to you know be a, a foreign business coming into Vietnam and and work with people who, you know, may, may not have a lot of experience working with foreigners as well? I mean, do they do they does it is there sort of a a lot of emphasis place on building trust with them or are they quite open to you do i mean what's required to set up a la la move in a country like that where, where do you start i
1: think like any com- uh, country like this where you know you're obviously from not from there it's a lot of empathy you know you, right. you spend a lot of time observing and asking instead of trying to dictate mm. um because you there's lots of things you don't know and every time you think you figured it out there's something else that happens that makes you realize you really don't know much so um, you know our philosophy on this is we always hire a local uh, MD right. always, and yeah. the whole team is local. I mean, we're we're not you know um, you know basically parachuting in peop- like people like me to go mm. run the local business. I, I mean, I would not be suited to do this. So um, you know this is it's not a partnership from an investment side, but it's a partnership in like how we actually approach the market is that. We let the market tell us what the market wants, and then we um, build our business around those dynamics, as opposed to overly exerting, you know, um, you know, our our methodology, our, our you know, what we think is right.
0: Mm. Yeah, you bring up that word empathy, which is uh, you know increasingly used, isn't it, in, in these sort of situations? And uh, people th- I think people overlook it a lot because it seems to be like a fuzzy skill, isn't it? It's like a nice to have thing, but. I think what you're talking well, about.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I, I think typically it's a, a result of like people think it's fuzzy, though it's because they're insecure, right? right. So you typically become more authoritative when you're insecure. Exactly. And that's like a, your fight or flight mentality, right? So it's kind of the fight part, but actually you know, if you're spending too much time talking or not observing and trying to tell people in, in a situation that you're not familiar with, you're missing all of the underlying cues of what's actually happening.
0: Yeah, those underlying cues are really important, isn't it? Because, you mm. know, like, like you go back to that, that story when you were in Bangkok and you were doing your research, you were actually talking to drivers, right? You know, right. I, I can imagine, like you say, that sort of fight or flight, that sort of top down command chain model, you, you would have just done a focus group right or you would have yeah. you know paid somebody to, some somebody to go out and do the research do, do you are you as a part of your job it's it would be quite easy for you to spend your life in airports and hotels right you know because yeah. it's very comfortable do, are you forcing yourself to get out there what, what do you actually do i'm curious to know like you know the md of international yes. how does he actually do it when he goes to these cities
1: Oh, I mean, I, I love to go on like sales calls. Um, I love to sit with our customer service in the cities. Um, yeah. I sit, I sit through the driver training, right? So like, you pick up, uh, and it's not always what you hear. It's actually the body language, right? So you pick mm-hmm. up a, you know, I forget what the statistics are. It's like um, most um, communication is actually done non-verbally, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> and, true. and so um, it's very, very important to physically be present, see this, and and again, like. Um, we're actually instituting a program now where, like, um, we're going to pilot with all of the core management team, where you have to go actually be a customer service agent. You yeah. have to go through driver training, and you have to actually go on a sales call, like at least every quarter, yeah. um, b- because, like, otherwise you you do it's it's very easy to go sit in an air conditioned office and pretend you know what the right decision is, but like. I I have a motorcycle here in Hong Kong, and I go be a driver for a day. The experience experience is very, very different from like you know. Oh, let's build Let's let's build a very beautiful UI and all of this. Like go out when it's forty degrees and deliver thirty packages and tell me how you feel at the end of the day. Like you know, it's not a. uh, It's it's very easy to become disconnected if you if you don't have that perspective.
0: Yeah, I I I think about. Um, Tony Shea and Zappos, when you talk about mm. this sort of, you know, very empathic approach to building effectively what is a service business. And, you know, that I, I remember reading, I think it's in Delivering Happiness that he wrote that, you know, one thing that Tony Shea loves nothing more than doing is, is getting on the phones in the, the call center, right? Mm. You know, so often Zappos employees are, are surprised when, if they see Tony Shea, who's the CEO and quite a high, high profile CEO as well, you know, he'll be on the phone taking a call. From somebody who's buying, you know, like a a pair of shoes. So not only does that set a great example, I think for him, it's not just about, you know, internal PR. It's also just kind of recalibrating his understanding, isn't it, of what customers are all about. So he doesn't kind of drift off into his little sort of air-conditioned world, which is so easy, isn't it?
1: It is very easy, yeah, because there's always something to do, right? Like something pressing. But actually, your customers are the most pressing thing
0: always. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that idea that you're saying that training program, that sounds quite interesting. That sounds quite radical Uh, in a way.
1: Well, I mean, we actually, um, uh, just like I said, we had our meeting in uh, Ho Chi Minh with the regional team and I actually said, all right, like what are some things we can do to make our culture stronger? Yeah. And one of the feedback was like, Hey, let's, let's make sure that as we grow so quickly that like we actually keep our feet on the ground. And so this came from one of the participants in this meeting, um, one of our uh, regional operations people, And it's a, it's a brilliant idea because it's like, again, you have to stay connected to like, I always tell our our, our employees when they start, even our developers, like don't like our business is not in this office. It's outside. Like if you want to ask a question, like don't ask me, go, go out there and ask Mm. the customer. Um, and so we even do this when we do interviews, like, uh, whether it's the MD or, you know, customer service manager or whatever for new city, we just say, all right, like, the interview was great, whatever. But you know what, I want you to go talk to five users and five drivers. Don't tell them you're interviewing, just ask them about their day. Yeah, just ask them. And you'll be surprised that one, the people that aren't willing to do that, because they think they're above it. So we don't hire those people for sure. And then two, like the, you know, it reinforces to those people that we are hiring that like, that is what their job is. It's not about like, you know, make, pleasing me or somebody else internally. It's about how do we create value for these these people and these drivers?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bit you said there, Blake, about it It self-selects in a way. I can't remember what you said, but it sort of just, you know, the it discourages the people who are of the wrong mindset, which is really important, isn't it? Because there are a group of people, and I I can say this because I've been an employer. I've hired people for my mm-hmm. business in the past. And, you know, the attitude is, hey, look, look I've done an MPA. I didn't do my MBA to... Talk to customers, right? Yeah, so that sort of mindset, uh, right? You know,
1: yeah. I, I always want to do strategy. Let me do strategy. Just, <laughs> yeah. All right. How do you know what the strategy is? Right, right, you right. Build, right. What the execution looks like, right? So, exactly.
0: But I mean, but you, I mean you, the way you've approached that, Blake, is quite refreshing because you could easily be the strategy guy, and you know, obviously, you are the strategy guy. But your interpretation, your understanding of strategy, is the day to day. It's what actually happens here, right? At the the you know the atom level. Of That experience with customers and drivers and so on. I'm curious how you have arrived at that as the right way to do it and how you, you know, that that's part of your DNA. What, what was your background before that? Were you involved in retail or were you involved somehow in sort of, you know, that frontline customer service? Um, I I definitely was. I mean, my, my corporate
1: background was actually doing real estate and I did a lot of research through that, um, to understand like where I should be building different stores for Walgreens. But then when I went to rocket internet here in Hong Kong, um, I, I just done actually my MBA part of it in Singapore and NUS. Um, and then I, then I moved here to Hong Kong with rocket, um, to set up their taxi business. So similar to Uber Hmm. and I spent the first Eight weeks um, during um, August and September in Hong Kong, standing outside uh, petrol stations, handing out flyers to drivers. Well,
0: with your, uh, you, you, but wait, 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 back up a little bit. You had mm-hmm. an, you had an MBA. Mm-hmm. What would your sort of MBA class be thinking if they saw you standing at the <laughs> petrol station handing out flyers? Blake, what's I, going on, man?
1: Yeah, they would have thought that, but you should have even seen the, the Hong Kong <laughs> drivers. <their face> probably <laughs> it was even more, this is what more guy did right? right. Yeah. Um, because uh, and and I don't speak Cantonese, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I actually I think it worked in my favor. It's actually a pretty good marketing technique because yeah. the novelty of this guy standing <laughs> out here. <laughs>
0: Was that by choice or they said, hey, Blake, look, this is your first assignment. Get out there. Uh,
1: I mean, truthfully, when I showed up, the global CEO handed me uh, a page with 10 questions on like, uh, here's what you should go do to start the business. Go do it. And I didn't know what to do. So I had to go find out like where my supply was. So I literally would just, you know, take taxis around to talk to the drivers and that could speak English. And then um, the best place to actually do this efficiently, I found out is they had their shift change. Um, and they would all get petrol right before their shift change. And there's only certain, uh, petrol stations that have the kind of, uh, petrol they need for their cars. Right. Wow. So uh, they would just line up and, you know, 50, hundred, 200 at a time. So, um, I mean, just that, that was my market research to, wow. to, yeah. be, to be efficient, to understand what my market looked like.
0: So you did eight weeks um, just standing around just, and they, they yeah, building I mean, trust I with mean, these guys
1: and. Yeah, I, I don't think I took a day off for the first, you yeah. know, weekends or anything for the first 100 and 120 days or something like this, wow. because, you know, um, but that's what it took. I mean, we had a team of two or three. How do you get drivers to join your platform if you don't have anybody else? Well, you go do it yourself.
0: Right. So what did you learn in that process? I'm fascinated by what you actually uh, did.
1: It's just it's, uh, one, like um, people uh, make the Internet to be way sexier than it is, particularly right. in, uh, <laughs> uh, online to offline. I mean, maybe. Some of the AI and cryptocurrencies and stuff—that's way over my head. But um, a lot of anybody that's got an offline component, like um, I would say, at the beginning, way overvalues the technology component of it. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think that's one thing I learned. And two it's like, all right, yeah, I had this MBA, like I had a corporate career behind me, all of this, but it's just, it's a it's a good reminder of like humility. Mm. <laughs> you know, there there's. I mean, the difference between you and a driver on the surface may look very, very different, but we're all just people. We're just doing something different. We just, you know, we just come from a different background. And some of that was due to what we've done, but a lot of it is just where you're born. Hmm. Um, and so, like, uh, I don't know. I spent a lot of time, in, not a lot of time, I spent some time in South Africa working in, like, rural villages with the uh, the Clinton Foundation, and that couldn't be as different uh, from my my youth, right? Yeah, yeah. But, like, the humanity that really connects us all that, um, you know, I just try to make sure that I keep as in, you know, a very present part of our, my life. And, you know, that experience with the drivers early on was, you know, another reflection of the the importance of that.
0: Yeah. I think what you've done is, is inspiring really, you know, that, that could have easily been overlooked. Like, you know, your experience in South Africa or what you did in Hong Kong. It's a great reminder, isn't it? that this is what needs to happen and, you know, we need to kind of step outside our bubbles and come down to the level of just normal people. And we are just one of them. Right. And that, you know, it may sound like a, you know, for some people, it may be a spiritual exercise, but at the end of the day, it's good business. Right. It makes complete business sense that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you don't want this to be a zero sum game. Right. 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 like, I mean, the uh, sure someone may win, but at the End of the day, like it, it's better, you know, if the pie is growing for everybody. It's way more enjoyable to have a lot of friends that are all succeeding than like you and one other guy, and one of you's going to lose everything.
0: Like, right, right, yeah. I mean, this is the problem. If, if, I mean, I don't want to dwell too long on them, but obviously one of the problems with Uber has been Travis Kalanick and his sort of, you know, you know, he, he's been very successful in expansion, but people have often said he lacks empathy. You know, mm. that, and that, you know, ultimately it, you can get you so far, but like you say, the zero sum game, is going to catch you at the end. Right. And I think that's yeah. kind
1: of, yeah. I mean, it, in, in that kind of space and even to some degree our market, like you, you need, there's elements of Travis that you definitely need to be successful. Yeah. Absolutely at different stages, but like, just like anything, like you also as an individual have to evolve. Right. Mm. So like what you did before is not necessarily going to, you know, dictate your future success. And so, I mean, as a fast-growing startup or a company, like, I mean, we always talk the biggest risk is that the company grows faster than the people. So how do we make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah. Because uh, people don't change that quickly, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that's that's actually what's needed to continue to succeed. And so, um, you know, most of the times I would say companies, once they get to a certain stage, they don't fail because, like the competitors like do something dramatically better is because like their people just didn't grow with the pace of the business.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The the people end up serving the organization rather than the other way around. Right. That's kind of, that's always the danger, isn't it? So um, where does that attitude come from? I sort of, you know, uh, when I hear stories like your own, Blake, is that, you know, somebody who's obviously well-educated, successful, who could have easily, you know, and you did the MBA, you could have easily gone down that very sort of comfortable career path However, you've, you've you've consciously it seems put yourselves into situations outside, well outside of your comfort zone, mm. like Clinton Foundation, South Africa, Hong Kong, standing at a yeah. petrol station. You know, and not just standing at a petrol station, but being a white guy standing at a petrol yeah. station, and obviously a, an object <laughs> of curiosity and maybe even laughter. I suppose you know, it's like yep. you, you've chosen that, right? I, I when I see that, often you can trace that back to you know. The influence of people around you when you were younger, like you could have worked, you know, your dad could have worked in a, you know, had a business where he could have worked in a a warehouse where you had access to, you know, like working class, normal people and you were surrounded Mm. by those people. You often hear those kind of stories. It starts quite young. In the development, what about yourself? Where was the, you know, what were your sort of formative experiences? Yeah, I'd actually,
1: I'd actually say I was a, a slow learner on this. Um, I, w- I wish I had developed this mentality much, much earlier. I actually have to give most of the, the credit to my wife. Um, she was a, a high school teacher. Um, we've actually been together since we were eighteen, and wow. you know, I'm thirty-six now. Yeah, yeah. half so, your life. Yeah, half my life is pretty, pretty amazing. But yeah. um, she she has this insatiable curiosity for uh, the world. And so, I mean, she did her student teaching in New Zealand, and then she did a bunch of uh, teaching in Costa Rica and then Peru, and then did her master's program where she was in Borneo in Africa and Africa. And so I would always go along um, kind of as a travel component, but not a living component. Right. But she, she, she taught me, like, that – your personal growth is so much more when you when it becomes not the world becomes not about you and what you're trying to do and you just beca- like i love feeling small right. like it's the be- it's the best feeling in yeah. the world yeah. because like you start to see both like how important your life is but also like how you fit into the bigger picture yeah. and and you only can do that through like self-awareness but self-awareness doesn't come just from like thinking about yourself it's actually being around things you don't understand because then it makes you question things. It makes you push yourself. It makes you try things you wouldn't otherwise try. And so, I mean, I I didn't get that till like m- that bug until my l- mid to late 20s. Wow. Well, I, I I wish it was when I was like 10 or 15, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I feel like I'm playing catch-up now.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, um, but the qu- it's quality, not quantity, right? So.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, like, uh, I mean, the thirst just becomes yeah. more insatiable, actually. Like, the more they always, what is it, like, the more you realize you, you don't know, the more you want to know kind of thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. I mean, my, my biggest joy is stepping off a plane in a new city because oh, it's, yeah. like, it's like, what, what am I going to learn that I don't know?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, a, um, yeah, I'm just excited listening to it. So thank you, Mrs. Larson, by the way, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for making all this possible. Um, she's with you in Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, she's here. All right, she actually she actually just uh finished her PhD. She's a doctor now in uh All right. leadership and change management focused on like uh you know transfer like self-transformation. So, I mean, she, oh. I, I continue I continue to get good coaching.
0: Yeah, she she's the world <laughs> expert in this matter, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I I find it fascinating what you're saying is, you know, like the, the travel aspect of it as well, like making you you mentioned for example, feeling small. Um, you know, these are conscious decisions again. And, uh, you know, you, you've taken that path. You, it's almost like you, you've, it's a it's a reinvention in a way, stepping outside of what, you know, is a comfort zone. Like even, you know, you've moved to Hong Kong, you can easily get comfortable, but you're you're constantly yes. challenging yourself. You know, stepping off, off a plane into a new city. I think these are all, th- th- there are parallels between startup businesses, being an entrepreneur and being a traveler. Mm. in in many ways and you know you you can go through life as a tourist you know on the bus so to speak and you know living in the hotel (laughs) or or you can be that traveler and there Mm -hmm. are many parallels I think which are are not often talked about but like you said stepping off a plane you know going exploring a new city it's like being in a startup environment isn't it and you you can choose to stay at the hotel eat at the hotel Uh. or you can go and eat at the roadside you know roadside hawker store where you know mama's cooking up for two Absolutely. bucks, the best food you're ever going to eat, right? And you're going to get sick, and you know it, but you right. still eat it because it tastes delicious. <laughs> it's the risk, right? But that kind of um. environment and living without necessarily having rules laid down for you, right? So I'm curious about how you're constantly challenging yourself. Now, here's the challenge with with mm. Lala Move: is that you, you know you are a high profile company. You, you now have two thousand plus employees. Um, and, and I don't know how many drivers are on your platform, but we, we count them in millions, right? So, right. so that there, there's a lot of expectation. A lot of people don't necessarily want you to risk that anymore. So how, mm. how do you constantly challenge yourself in that environment? You know, put yourself in those situations without sort of, you know, like jeopardizing it. Because the, the risk now is higher, ah. isn't it?
1: Yeah, the, the, the risk definitely gets higher, right? But like uh, maybe the, the risk also is even higher if you don't do anything. Mm. Uh, if you just if you just manage the status quo so like um i don't know how i consciously do it but i know that if i'm going to work every day and not feeling a little nervous i'm not pushing myself hard enough Mm. um and so we use that advice internally a lot it's like if you're too if you're comfortable if it feels too easy it means you you've got more in you and so consequently we're always looking for you know the opportunities of like self-growth and learning i mean uh, since the very early days, we had four values, and and one of those is passion, and a lot mm-hmm. of that is you know internal drive, and not just to like uh to it's mostly internal drive to grow, and also having the humility to say what you don't know, because then it creates a learning culture where you want you you just have a thirst to know what you don't know, and I think like. Maybe it's not always a conscious decision, but if this gets built into the subconscious of the organization mm. and everybody's taking little efforts to do these types of things over and over again, we're going to find the ways to continue to grow the business without taking on too much risk because mm. it's just built into the DNA
0: of who we are. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting subject, isn't it? That whole sort of corporate DNA area. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, it's 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 very much. I mean, it's very much contained in the early founders isn't it and absolutely and how they live their lives by example so you know people hearing mm. your story what what that tends to do now is that will attract a certain type of person to lala move you know yes and because oh yeah you know, i heard blake's story and you know really connected with it a, a, a kindred spirit would be attracted to lala move and then you know that sort of replicates the dna for the next generation of executives coming through right and you know absolutely this, and that's a really important part of it you know that how you live your life almost like a You know, they say, like, the three laws of parenting are example, example, example. You know, it's like, whatever you say, it's like the kids are just going to watch you and copy what you do. It's it's the same in any kind of social setup, isn't it? People will just look Uh, at what you do. Yeah, I mean, so I'm curious. I mean, just sort of rounding up is that, you know, people now, like yourself, I'm sure will be interested, excited even, of of getting into Asia, you know, working for a company like yours. Um, You know, what kind of people thrive in that environment and and maybe maybe we could start off by talking about what kind of Mm. people don't thrive in these kind of environments you know coming from outside of asia you know working for a a high growth startup is that for everybody
1: oh for sure not for sure not and actually like uh i actually don't like most of the media to be honest it goes around like the tech scene at the moment you know it's mostly about funding these big stories like this glamour side of it and it, I think it sells like it, it's like a, a false prophecy to a lot of people that shh, like could consider it like it's not for everybody. Mm. It really isn't the intensity that you go through day in and day out. is quite a bit. It's really hard to balance, you know, other priorities in your life. I mean, I just had a baby uh, almost three months ago now. And so trying to work that in and, you know, you know, still like maintain like who you are at your roots and mm. continue to push it to work and keep your family stuff like it's um You know, it's a great opportunity to personally grow um, at any stage of your life, but it's not for everybody. And so, uh, you know, you should want to do it for the right reasons. Um, Mm. And and sometimes it's, it's, you know, you need stability in your life. And it's not that startups aren't stable, but it's just a very, very different dynamic Mm. from, say, a corporate job.
0: Yeah. So let's flip that on its head a little bit. The, the people that really thrive in the environments, I'm sure you've had a few surprises as well. People who really shone, shined, if that's a mm. word, without, you didn't really think they were going to be like the real home run hits. It's, yeah. You know, because you put them in the environment and, you know, some people succeed when you thought they were not going to be as good as you thought they were. And some right. people, uh, you know, it's, it's in the real world, isn't it? The rubber hits the road, so to speak. So what, you know, based on your experience, what kind of people really thrive in a place like Lalo Move?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll I'll go back to our our company values. So we have four. The first one is passion. The second one is grit. Uh, The third one is humility. And the last one's execution. Right. So the first three are kind of like who you are. Right. Passion and passion. Like, can you self-motivate as more and you bring positive energy to work every single day. Right. Like Mm -hmm. your manager can motivate you and your teammates can help you when you're down. But if you're depending on outside forces or outside people to, to be the things that motivate you, it's probably not for you, right? Hmm. Um, grit, um, anybody who's ever started a business or been around one, like you know that the fluctuations, like even intraday, like you can have the best morning and the worst afternoon and, or even within the span of an hour, so it, we always say, it's not what you do, it's what you do after something goes wrong that really yeah. matters in a startup, right? Like, cause you, there's so there's so many unknowns, it's actually how you react when it doesn't go as planned, that is actually the, the predicator for success in a startup, and is our belief. Um, the third one is hum- humility, right? So like, uh, that's both like, uh, the, you know, the team before you, the desire to keep learning, but one people always forget to add here is like, you don't reinvent the wheel. Like if Like somebody's already solved a problem just because you're an MBA or super smart. Like you don't need to prove yourself by solving a problem that's already been solved, right? Like people know how to do login. Facebook and Google probably spent hundreds and thousands of hours optimizing login. Like don't come up with a new login kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And and then the last one is execution. It's like the the first three are wonderful, but if you're like not willing to put yourself out there and actually execute and deliver results, like those are wonderful character traits, but at at some point in a startup because you have – um, less money, it's maybe more competitive and you're going against big guys. You, you actually have the things you do have to translate into progress.
0: Yeah, those, those are great values. I suppose a good test of that, if, if anyone is listening, is is that, you know, could you do like Blake did and stand out on the corner of the the <laughs> petrol station handing out flyers and actually enjoy it, right? That's the challenge, isn't it? Because I, I don't know if everybody would. But everything that you talked about in The Values is really sort of inculcated in that that environment, isn't it? It's all about, you know, self-development. It's all about the passion mm. for doing, understanding why you're doing it. It's an investment. You're having the empathy and yep. you know, the determination to see it through, right? You know, if, if somebody thought, well, you know, I'm not going to do this. I can think of a better way of doing this, right? Yeah. You probably can step back and think, mm, okay, well, I'll listen to your, what you've got to say, but, you know, chances are that yeah you know you need to get out there and talk to the drivers and talk to
1: Ab- absolutely I mean I think that's the best litmus test ever right like anybody who wants to join a startup like I would the advice I would give them if they're going to go for an interview like sure go read the TechCrunch article yeah. or listen yeah. to the podcast whatever but like just go talk to whoever the users of that company are <laughs> or who or, or potential customers and just ask them what they're doing that would that like that would blow me away in an interview where I didn't have to ask somebody to go do that if they just came to me and said, "Hey, yeah. like I went and talked to twenty drivers and I talked to twenty small businesses because I wanted to understand like what they're feeling, like that that would send like an, an amazing signal my way if I was speaking to somebody who wanted to join our company.
0: Well, there you go. I mean, you've just gave, gave, given away the answer <laughs> to the job <topic> interview <laughs> Lala move, right? But there yeah, you go. Right. I mean, if I was applying for, you know, if I was interesting interested in Lala move or you know, here's the thing as well. I mean, a lot of people, uh, especially sort of young entrepreneurs, say, like, how do I get a start in startups? And they think they have to go and start a business themselves. Often one of the, the best pieces of advice is, that, you know, you don't necessarily have to start a business yourself. You can go out and join uh, a growing startup like a Lala move, right? And that's yeah. a great environment. To, in a way, a lower risk environment. But you Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. you get all that sort of mentoring. You get that access you would never would have had. You know, if, if you went and did it on your own. I, mean,
1: I think this is what Rocket did for Southeast Asia. Yeah. I mean, everybody has opinions about them, but like this is what they, they brought that type of mentality and, and reduced the risk for a lot of people that wouldn't have otherwise entered it. So I would say that they sped up at least Southeast Asia. Exactly. They sped up the ecosystem by five to seven years uh, just as a result. I mean, all my friends that were at Rocket, and I was only there eight or nine months, are still good friends, and they're all doing amazing things now. Because of like like the learning curve, like again, like what kind of company can you go to and have to go hand out like flyers for the first yeah. like six weeks, right? Like like you would laugh, nobody would believe that, but like that that kind of learning environment is uh, you don't get that in many places.
0: So, Blake, I heard something interesting. Somebody mentioned that you make your new employees build their chairs. What's that all about?
1: Yeah. So I, the, the story behind this is like um, you know about two. To three years ago, we we were running a pretty short on funds, and you know, and we're in this old, like, beat up industrial space. But obviously, we have a lot of engineers and people in the office who are sitting in their chairs all day, and are, you know, really uncomfortable in these chairs. And uh, can we get new chairs? Can we get new chairs? And we didn't have the money to buy new chairs. And so at the time, what we did is like, and like, instead of saying no, we can't get them, or like spending the money to buy them for everybody, and when we can't afford it, we actually started a raffle monthly in our town hall meetings. And so it went from this thing where, like, uh, you know, every month five new people would get a chair, right? Right. And, and they weren't super fancy chairs, but they were definitely better than what we had, right? And so uh, people got really excited every month, like, am I going to win this chair? Am I going to win this chair? And eventually after, you know, about a year, everybody had a new chair. Mm. And so, you know, and fast forward a couple of years, and obviously we've, you know, grown quite a bit since then and have some more funding. And then um, we have, you know, every time we have a new employee come in, we basically give them a box um, by their desk and they're like, you know, what's this? And and they say, Oh, it's your chair. And they're like a chair. Like, well, where's my chair? And it's in the box. Well, what do I do? You put it together. Right. And so then we get to tell them the story of like, Hey, like sometimes, you know, things are really good and sometimes they're hard, but like we never want to forget about the hard times because like times won't always be perfect. And so we want to share with you, like, why we are the way we are as a company. And we believe that this chair symbolizes, um, you know, who we are and what our values are. And that like, this is both a short and a long journey. And some days will be good. Some days will be bad. But if you stick around, I promise it's going to be a great adventure.
0: Wow. That's that's amazing. I would love to see the reactions. I'd love to be a fly on the wall and see those reactions. You know, I'm not talking about the, the negative reactions, but I see a lot of positive reactions to that. Could I kind
1: yeah. Of- yeah. I mean, we we actually like one, one employee actually slipped through the loophole on this. And so he saw somebody else putting their chair together. And he's like, why? He was really offended. He's like, why is this new person, you know, putting this chair together? Because he had just started the week before. Yeah. And and then we told him and his eyes went from like, like total judgment. Like, why is this poor, like new engineer building <laughs> a chair? To be? Like, that's
0: a great thing.
1: Yeah. And, and so, you know, super. And, you know, he's one of our better employees now. So
0: It's so awesome. Because these sort of like off-piste, like in scenarios, is where the the, the real, like you said, it's like, Earlier you said, you know, you can really see the mark of a character of a person when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Not saying it's good things go wrong, but when they're unplanned, you yeah. know, you give people this, this kind of like challenge. You really get to see what they're like in the environment, especially in a sort of a startup environment where it's not all planned out. Right and you know somebody sure. could have bs their way through the interview process you really get to see it right there and then right what they're actually like absolutely
1: <laughs> absolutely. yeah you really get a, a true test of character when they gotta put their chair together on their first day
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I suppose as well I mean the mark of you know we, one of the challenges the mark of an organization going wrong is like when the boss gets the the new people the new guys to build his chair right yeah we, we have
1: we have a no a no office policy and not because we are a huge believer in open office or not but because we believe that there should be no distance between anybody and being able to communicate with each other there should be no wall there should be no barrier so you know what, what you see is what you get
0: absolutely and that's what it's all about yeah Blake it's been a real pleasure honestly this has been thanks a, thank you Graham a real inspiring journey as well and you know I think what you're doing is is just such a good example for the the rest of the region as well not just in terms of the success story but you know it's at the end of the day we talked about it a number of times it's about people and it's all very well having smart, intelligent people, but there's that emotional level as well, that the empathy which we've talked about, which is really what a business like La La Move is based on built on, right? And you know, what you've talked about is really the nuts and bolts of how you build a business around empathy, you know, in multiple regions as well. So I think it's a great case study for anybody looking at this. Whether they're a potential partner, potential employee. Or even potential competitor in the future in another space. You know, here's a great example of, you know, how to do it. So thank you for so much for coming on to the show and sharing your time with us. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Graham.
1: You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.